Today we're continuing through the book of Acts. We're starting in Acts 1. We're going to work our way all the way through the very end. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 5 today. Not uh, exactly the easiest chapter of the book of Acts, but it's, uh, we, we saw the mount, a mountaintop yesterday, last week, excuse me, with at the end of Acts chapter 4, where we have all the believers. They've come together in, in a great example of community where they're sharing their possessions. Anybody who has needs, someone is selling something they have to provide for each other. As they begin to face uh, some persecution, and that persecution, as we know, is going to get worse and worse as, as the book of Acts goes on. But they, when the adversity came, when the hardship came, they came together as one. They were united in their spirit and their purpose over this resurrected Jesus. And we saw in the end of Acts chapter 4 what that looked like in flesh and blood. They met together. They, they ate meals together. They prayed together. They were, they were one body. And it was a great example of what the church is supposed to look like. And then we turn the page to chapter 5, and every good thing comes to an end, right? It always does. And we were reminded that the early church was full of imperfect people as we come here to chapter 5, which should always remind us of that. If you think about it, the book, the, book, the Bible, begins in the same way. It began with everything being good as God creates. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5. It gets to day 6. He creates human beings in the image of God. Male and female, he, he, he makes them. And he says at the end of that day, that isn't just good, it's, it's very good. Then you turn the chapter to chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, and what happens? All the good stuff comes crashing down. The same thing happens here. It's almost like a recreation of Eden where we have this beautiful group of Christians who are sharing everything together. They're, they're showing us what it means to follow Jesus with everything they have. And then we turn the page to chapter 5, and we see an example of two people who are trying to take advantage of that community, trying to take advantage of God. And it doesn't end up very well for them. It, you haven't read this story before. so We'll jump into Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We meet two people here, one Ananias and one Sapphira. They're a husband and wife. They're a couple. The Scripture says this, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. We ended last week, the end of chapter 4, with Barnabas doing something. What did Barnabas do? You remember? It says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37. It said, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's how we ended chapter 4. Right? This guy named Barnabas, who we're going to see becomes a very important character in the early church and a very important person in the book of Acts. He sells a field and brings all the money Lays at the apostles' feet, says, hey, you need, whatever you need to do with it, whoever needs it, whoever needs to be taken care of, here it is. It's for you to use. It's at your discretion. Make sure it gets to whoever needs it. And so we, we start chapter 5 with a similar situation. We have Ananias and Sapphira who are going to sell a piece of property and bring that money to the apostles. The difference is they've kept some of it back for themselves, which there is nothing wrong in doing. When you give to God, you give to God whatever it is you've you decide to give between you and him. It's your business, right? What you don't do is try to take credit for something more than you gave. And what Ananias, what you're going to see with Ananias and Sapphira is they come, they give the money for this field that they, this piece of property that they sold, leading everyone to believe that it's everything they got for that piece of property. So they saw what Barnabas had done, and they said, we want to be like him. We want, to, we want everyone to 
go ooh and ah. And so let's do the same thing. But we don't actually, aren't that generous. We don't really want to give that much. So we're actually going to keep part of it back. But we're going to make everyone believe that we've given everything we got for that field. What's going on here is they're, they're, they're deceiving, right? They're being deceitful. They're lying. We can call it all kinds of words we want to. We can make it sound great. It's a lie. It's a sin, right? That's what they're doing. They're, they're choosing to lie. So they bring part of the money to the apostles' feet. And this is what happens in verses 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Peter says, wait a second, Ananias. Like this, was, this is your, no one asked you to bring this. No one said you have to sell this, this piece of property and bring all your money to us, right? That, no one said you had, to, you had to lie about it. You chose to do this. You made a choice, and that choice has, as you're going to see in a minute, dire consequences. Peter confronts him and says, hey, wait a second here. The, the field was yours. The property was yours before you sold it. And then after you sold it, the money was at your disposal. You could do with whatever you wanted to. It's yours. You chose to give some of it, pretending, lying, that you gave all of it. Peter's saying, why? What, what could you possibly gain from that? And so we have to ask the question, why did they do it? Why did Ananias and Sapphira lie over something they didn't need to lie about, which is every lie, by the way, right? You tell a lie, you don't actually have to do it. No one's forcing you to lie. It's a choice that you and I, we make. They're lying because they want credit for something that they haven't done. They want the recognition without the sacrifice. Right? I mean, that's what's happening. They want to be recognized as though they're like Barnabas. They gave every, every bit of money they got for this. They want the recognition of that, but they don't actually want to do it. If there's anything you, we can learn in life, and it's something I hope you've learned this far in your life, is be careful of people who want the honor but don't want to pay the price to get it. Those people are dangerous. They want to wear whatever it is. They want the badge. They want the, they want the recognition. They want the title, but they don't want to work for it. They don't want to earn it. That's what's happening here. And Ananias and Sapphira, they want the credit for having done what Barnabas had done. But they don't actually want to do it. They don't want to actually sacrifice and give all their money. They want to keep some of it back for themselves. They could have came and just said, hey, we're going to give you half the money we sold from this and half the rest of it we're going to keep. And everything would have been, okay, that's, that's your money. Do whatever you want with it. But they want the recognition. They want the pat on the back without having to sacrifice. It's counter to everything we see in the Gospels about Jesus, isn't it? Somebody who isn't looking for credit, but is willing to sacrifice everything. Jesus doesn't have the fancy robes. The Scripture tells us He doesn't even have a place to lay His head. He doesn't even have a home. He has nothing, no trappings of this life, and He is willing to give everything in behalf of other people. Jesus is the exact opposite of these two, isn't He? Jesus, all the sacrifice, never looking for the credit. Matter of fact, everything Jesus did was for your benefit and my benefit. For the benefit of people who have ever lived. Everything Jesus does is for somebody else. It's for their benefit. 
He gets nothing from it. And Ananias and Sapphira, their spirit is the exact opposite. They don't want to actually pay the price, the sacrifice, but they want all the credit and all the pats on the back. And the decision comes with a heavy, heavy price, which for all of us, hopefully we know this, but all the young people who are in here, you need to listen. Every decision you make has a consequence. Sometimes that consequence might be great, might be, might be awesome. Sometimes the consequence might not be so great. But every decision we make in life, there comes a consequence with it. And the sooner we learn that in life, the better off we'll be. When you do something good, something good just might happen from that. When you choose to do something bad, there's a great chance that the consequence you're going to receive from that is going to be bad. There's a consequence to this decision that Ananias and Sapphira make, and the consequence is great. When Ananias heard this, Peter confronts him. He fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter confronts Ananias, and Ananias drops dead. No clue of what? The Bible doesn't tell us. It leaves a lot of details out here that we'd kind of like to know. I don't know if he has a heart attack. I don't know what happens, but he dies on the spot. And everybody's like, whoa, things just got real, right? I mean, holy cow here. What's going on? And Sapphira comes in having no clue, because remember, this, the, the culture in which they lived in, burial was very important, and I know this is going to sound kind of gross, but it was an arid climate. If you don't bury dead people, they start to smell. I know it sounds terrible. So they buried people very quickly. So Ananias is wrapped up and they take him and they start burying him because he's not going to sit there. Sapphira, his wife, has no clue this has happened. She comes in. Peter gives her a chance to tell the truth, does he not? He says, I'm not going to fault you for your husband's ignorance. She has a chance to do, says, how much, is this, is this the price you got for the field, for the property you sold? Is this it? And she says, yeah. What does she do? She lies. Well, like we said earlier, every decision has a consequence, doesn't it? Peter says to her in verse 9, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in. Poor guys, they've already dug a grave, right? They're the the real victim of this story no one pays attention to about walking bury this guy come back and there's another one it's like how long is this going to last right (laughs) someone please start telling the truth so this can stop at any moment like the poor young men they come in they find her she's dead well we got another one to bury right so they carry out and buried her beside her husband and look at verse 11 great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events well yeah be careful what you say right you're not gonna lie anymore it seems odd doesn't it i mean the story seems it's like we we were on this mountaintop in the end of verse four you're at the peak you couldn't get any better of watching these christians do exactly what jesus had told them to do and then here we have verse five or excuse me chapter five and you think to yourself well that didn't last long i don't know if you follow climbers at all people who climb peaks but they don't spend a lot of time on the mountaintop, do they? When you get to the top of Mount Everest, you know what you do? You take a picture and you get your rear end down. 
right? Because the clock is ticking. I mean, really, those poor people, they spend all this time climbing that mountain and they're up there for like 10, 15 minutes and they're like, okay, time to go. Trying to die on the way down. Life is a lot like that, isn't it? Sadly, far too often, we won't get to spend a lot of time on the mountaintop. You get there, you're like, okay, this is pretty cool. The problem with being on the mountaintop is there's only one, way, one place to go unless you have wings and can fly, right? Only one place to go. And where is that? It's back down the mountain. And I, I watched it time and time again when we would take our, our kids to, to summer camp. And they'd be on this high of summer camp. They're around all these other people who are like them, right? You know, Christian kids. And, and they've had adults and people pouring into them for a week. And then they get home. And as soon as they're home, something happens. And the next youth group, and they're, and they're down, back down, back down to earth. It happens to us all the time. It's important that we remember that when we're on the mountaintop, that we cherish that time spent there when everything is going well, when everything is going how we, we hoped it would be, and we appreciate it. Because sadly, it doesn't stay that long, and the church is experiencing that in this section of the book of Acts. They were just on the mountaintop in chapter 4, and then chapter 5 comes. We're back down to earth, reminding ourselves, and they get a great reminder that people... Do stupid things because we're people and that tends to be our habit. Is we all, including myself, we just make poor choices sometimes, don't we? We say the thing we know we shouldn't say and yet we say it anyways. And the moment it comes out of our mouth, we're trying to reel it back in, but it's too late. It's been said. The damage has been done and the hurt and the pain has been brought. This reminds us, the story reminds us that we fall short. We sin. We don't always get it right. The story, though, should also remind us of something we've seen in, in the Bible somewhere else. It's actually, there's a lot of similarities with the story that we find in the book of Joshua. It's not exactly the same, but there's some similarities. What's happening in this part of the book of Joshua is a story that you've all heard. It's a story we teach kids in Sunday school. It's kind of a gruesome story we teach kids in Sunday school, but we teach it. Right? It's the Bible. It's in there. This is going on during the siege of Jericho. Remember the story of Jericho? The spies have been sent there. Rahab, the prostitute, brings them in, lets them, gives them safe shelter. They spy on Jericho. They come back. Joshua, we can take Jericho. We can do it with God's help. God gives them some crazy instructions. Walk around, blow horns, right? And then just walk around seven times and the walls will come down. They're thinking, okay, God, or whatever you say, right? They're going to conquer Jericho as they're working their way to the promised land, the land that God promised them. Long time ago, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I want to read parts of the story to you. It begins in Joshua 6. And God warns them before they ever are able to before they conquer Jericho. He, he, he warns them this. He tells them this in Joshua 6, 17, 18, and 19. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So God warns them, hey, when the walls of Jericho come down, when you lay siege to them and you defeat them, none of the stuff in Jericho is yours. It's mine. Right? God says, I, you didn't knock the walls down, I did. Stuff belongs to me, not you. So don't take any of it. 
It goes into the treasury of the Lord. It's going to bless other people, but it's mine. It doesn't belong to you. And he warns them. He says, hey, anyone, if you take it, there's consequences. There's consequences. And just like in our story, there's consequences, right? The problem is, there's one family who doesn't listen. Old Achan. This is what happens in chapter 7. One, it says, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. They saw the shiny silver and gold and bronze and couldn't keep their hands off of it, right? Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zemari, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Just like in our story with Ananias and Sapphira, we have somebody who's not faithful, who decides to be deceitful, to do something wrong. One family, this whole nation is going to be consequences because of one family. And look what happens. As they're going to go lay siege to Ai, it doesn't go so well. Look what happens in Joshua 7, verses 3, 4, and 5. It says, When they returned to Joshua, they said, Now all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So during the conquest, Joshua is going to send people to Ai to conquer it as they're making their way to the Holy Land. And what happens? They're defeated. They didn't even send their whole army. They went in this going, we can defeat these guys, no problem. Send two, 3,000 people. We'll go in there. It'll be done. No big deal. They go in there, and all of a sudden, it, it's not done, and it's not going their way. And the people of Ai are chasing the Israelites in retreat. These guys went up there thinking, we're going to take this town, no problem. It doesn't go that way. Well, Why? Well, God's not for them. They did what God said not to do. And so they're, they're, they're routed and embarrassed by people who they should have conquered in no time flat. And so Joshua goes before the Lord on his knees. God, God what is going on here? You told us this is what you want us to do. Right? He does what everybody does in the Bible. God, I can't believe it. How could this happen to us? Right? He starts whining. It's constant. If you've read the Bible, you know that we're a bunch of whiners. They really are. People, human beings are. We just complain all the time. God, how could you? And so God says, all right, here, let me give you the answer. In verse 10, 11, and 12. Lord said to Joshua, stand up. I love that. Be a man. Get off your knees. Stop it. Quit whining. Stand up. I do this to my kids all the time. No, stop. Stand up. I don't want to hear it. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things, they have stolen, they have lied, and they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. What's God say? There are consequences to your actions. I told you not to take anything, and some of your people took those things. And there's a consequence. I love this section. I know it's not, it's not like butterflies and rainbows and unicorns, but the point is, you've got to be faithful. When God tells you to do something, you need to do it. And he tells you not to do it, you don't do it. I mean, it's kind of cut and dry, right? And so, it's not so fun things happen to Achan, just like we saw with Ananias and Sapphira. There are consequences to your actions. Here's the consequences in verse 24, 25, and 26. 
Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Accor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Think about his actions. The moment Achan stole those things, he cost 36 people, at least 36 soldiers, their lives. Right? I mean, the Bible warns us from the very beginning there are consequences to sin. And when he steals those things from Jericho, 36 warriors lose their life because of it. And so they say, hey, enough's enough, man. And look what happens. It's not exactly fun in the second part of verse 25. And all of Israel stoned him, and not like Northern California stoned him, right? Different kind of stone, like they threw rocks at his head. That's, it's just, I was a pastor in Northern California for a while, so I always had to point that thing out when we read it. Different kind of stoned, right? It's when you throw rocks at people and they die. That stoned. All Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned them, the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Accor ever since. The same message that we find in the end of our section of Acts. Sin has consequences. Now luckily for you and I, most of the time, our sin doesn't lead us straight to death, right? I mean, really. Here are extreme examples in Joshua and the book of Acts of a sin that led to, to someone's demise. But the point is, should be made nonetheless that there is consequences to sin. And we are lying to ourselves if we believe we can sin, we can do something contrary to the holy will and purpose of God and think that there are just no consequences to it. We convince ourselves that all the time, do we not? I do it too. We think if we do something wrong, it's okay, right? That if I tell a lie, it'll be all right. It'll be okay. And the problem with a lie is that one lie turns into another one and another one and another one and another one and then all of a sudden we've got this tangled mess that we've caused. And you know what? Someone's going to get hurt. Might not be you, but it could be somebody else. Think of Achan's sin. Achan's sin didn't hurt him in the beginning. Matter of fact, it enriched him. But it cost a bunch of warriors, a bunch of soldiers their lives. It ends up costing him his life. And what do we know the Bible tells us about sin? Sin equals death. Apostle Paul tells us that in the book of Romans. Sin is what brought death into the world. We see that back in Genesis chapter 3 great thing that you and I have is we stand on this side of the cross. We have a hope that these people just didn't have, did they? They were hoping for it. They were longing for it. Joshua's longing for the Messiah, hoping he will come. You and I are on this side of the cross where the Messiah has come, and we have a hope that Joshua just didn't have. That when we put our faith, our trust, and our hope in this Jesus, He takes the sin and the junk of our life away. He doesn't just take them away. He does something with you and me, right? I mean, it's great enough that our sins are no longer counted against us, but he doesn't stop there. That spirit fills us and moves and changes us and transforms us and turns us into the kind of people we would never be without him. So we don't repeat the past. We don't make the same mistakes over and over again. And over again. And the sin that once had a hold on us has a hold on us no more. So we have a hope that Joshua didn't have, that Ananias and Sapphira should have had, should have known better. 
I didn't. So we don't have to make those same mistakes over and over again. Look how this section of the book of Acts ends. We get a little, from the down, we, come, we, get, we get a little relief. We get to come back up. Verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. What we notice, and this is important, is that the down doesn't keep these Christians down, does it? Think about it. This is a very early, this, this is very early on in, in the history of our, of our church, of our people, of Christians. And they could have just folded after this. Could have all went, oh no, man, what, look, we can't go on. We can't do this anymore. And it doesn't stop them. This negative doesn't hold them down. And how often in our lives does something negative happen? Ten positive things have happened that day. One bad thing happens and all we think about that night is what? The one bad thing. It's like 10 good things happened. And all we think about is the negative. You had great interactions all day and one person says one thing a little off. You're not quite sure what they meant by that and that's all you think about the rest of the day. Why? Why would we let that happen? Look what the church did. Kind of, sort of a big deal. Two people died and it doesn't stop them from the, from the mission and the purpose. They keep going. Because when bad things happen, we find out something about ourselves, don't we? We see what kind of perseverance we have, what our hope and our faith and our trust is really put in. If it's put in ourselves, then things go kaputs right there. We're done. But if we place our faith and our hope in this God who is above and beyond all these situations in life, the good, the bad, the ugly, He sees it all and is above them. If our faith and our hope has been placed in Him, then the negative thing doesn't get us down. It doesn't stop us. You will find negativity everywhere you go. It only wins if you let it. It only wins if you let it in. Throw it out. It's gone. Focus on all the positive things and look what the, the, the first Christians do. The, the, verse 16 should be it for you. Crowds gathered also from the, ta- from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Not some of them, not three-fourths of them, not half of them. All of them are healed. The first Christians don't think to themselves, I could, we could feel sorry for ourselves right now and stay here and pout and whine like Joshua, right? Go down, God, how could this happen? I can't believe it. Or they could go back to work. And the first Christians go back to work because there's something important hanging in the balance. The souls of men and women they think to themselves, we can't sit here and pout and whine and complain. Let's go back to work. And they go back to work. And what we see in verse 14 is that regardless of anything that's happened, nevertheless, verse 14 says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Why? Because they didn't cry to God going, God, <laughs> right? They said, we know the purpose. We know the mission. We know what Jesus told us to do. He told us to go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, He promised He'd be with us 
always to the very end of the age, Matthew 28. And so they got back to work. And people are coming to to saving faith and knowledge of our Lord Jesus because of it. And you and I sit here today because of them. Because they were willing to pay the price. They were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to give of themselves and get those, their feet in the streets proclaiming the good news that Jesus is alive. He's alive. You and I get to do that same thing, don't we? Proclaim the good news with our actions and our words that Jesus is in fact alive to this very day. That death couldn't hold him and the grave couldn't keep him and that you and I not only have our sins forgiven, but have the hope and the promise of life everlasting with him where he will indeed wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. That's good news. We've got it. Now it's time to share it. You have it. It's time to give it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this example that we have here. As, as we first read it, God, it seems like a rather negative example and a terrible situation. But as we, we dive into it and we realize that adversity is going to come towards us all, that things aren't always going to go our way, but we have one thing that is steadfast, one thing that never changes, and God, that is you. You are completely unchanged. You are faithful no matter what. You are always there and you have always and will always care deeply about us and god we are so grateful for that so we ask that you would help us when those negative things come when adversity comes our way when we're not quite sure why things are going down the tubes and they're going down fast we realize that you are still seated on your throne that you are still good and you have always been and will always be good that you love us that you are compassionate and merciful towards us that you have loved us beyond anything we could possibly understand or comprehend. You proved that to us in the person of Jesus, and we're so grateful for him and for all that he's done for us and all that he continues to do for us. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that fills us, that guides us and leads us every day. We pray that you would work mighty in mighty ways and in powerful ways among us, God, helping us to proclaim this same good news that was proclaimed almost 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem by Peter, John, James, by all these first Christians. Help us and give us strength and courage to do so at school, at home, at work, the sports game, grocery store, God, wherever we find ourselves, to be witnesses of you. We thank you and we love you and pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your son Jesus and all God's people said.